Hello and welcome to the CAAV podcast. You're listening to episode 32 and I'm your host, Aled Jones. Once again, I'm joined by Jeremy Moody, Secretary and Advisor to the CAAV. Welcome, Jeremy. Now, in this podcast episode, we're going to be talking through some of the supply chain issues, disruptions we've seen over the past uh, 18 months or so. And um, let's start with the spring of last year uh, when the pandemic took hold um, that had some major shocks early on in supply chain particularly around food but the but the uh, supply chain for food did realign and readjust and cope remarkably well given given the the emergency situation we were in yes it did um, the early re- reactions to the pandemic saw quite a severe shock for the food sector as food service that is pubs catering restaurants Uh, and so on, all were closed. And that meant the food market had to reorient itself uh, with the difficulties that were happening in processing and so on with with the early phases of the pandemic and the extreme lockdown when it started. And that led to meat, to fish piling up, going into cold stores, significant disruption. But after about four or five weeks, it settled out Market, the markets found new channels, new ways to reach the residential market that on the whole tends to buy British. Prices strengthened what looked for just that handful of weeks to be a very disruptive and dangerous experience, then settled out and a new, a new apparent normality resumed with food coming through the supermarkets, reaching people and normal life then continuing. And it also led to uh, a lot more uh, local support for, for local food uh, and c- consumers wanting to support local supply chains. That's been a feature of the pandemic. That has. Buying British, buying local, um, a shift almost from the discounters to the main supermarkets, but also very strongly to local grocers, local butchers uh, in that reorientation of the supply chain. And it's going to be fascinating to see how much of that lasts as we progressively come away from the pandemic. And coming into this year, 2021, uh, there's been some major global supply chain challenges to grapple with. Well, if last year was the year in which we adapted to what the lockdown and the pandemic meant, what we have seen this year was the strains, the enormous competing strains as the world economy was being tugged in many different directions as major economies started recovering and then relapsing with further waves of the pandemic with measures taken against it. So we had seen as we ran on through the rest of 2020, we saw issues where parts couldn't be obtained from factories. The supply chain was getting stickier. Uh, prices were, 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 become, were, were rising, particularly for raw materials. But it was really in 2021 that we saw the Chinese economy spur back into life accelerating enormously, and then the American economy accelerating enormously. And those were sucking in imports to make the goods that they want. And that was drawing trade to them in an enormously powerful way. And that drove very, very much increased prices for containers to take the goods, particularly into directions going going, uh, going one way, but not the other. Container units piled up uh, in places where they weren't wanted, empty in some cases, full full of goods, some of them perishable in other cases. Uh, ships were 
accumulating in large numbers outside major ports, whether in China or America or elsewhere. And then, of course, in the spring, we saw the extreme disruption for Western Europe when the Ever Given, the great container ship uh, from China, was stranded in the Suez Canal, blocking it for barely a week. But that disrupted world supply chains for towards five weeks and more. And, of course, that glut of containers finally reached Felixstowe uh, quite a number of weeks later. So we, we have this pattern of everything being in the wrong place, the trade cycle, half a cycle out. And that has seen major delays, disruptions to the supply of goods um, that industry needs for, to produce, uh, the constructor, contractors need for construction, uh, the, the consumers wish to buy. Uh, and that has been, in a way, much more disruptive and generative inflation than anything we saw last year. And in addition to that, one of the major features of this year has been the disruption within the energy market and huge increases in energy prices. Was this uh, something that was to be expected or did it catch the UK somewhat um, unprepared? This really is a function of economic recovery. Uh, we had reached a point where there was even almost officially a negative price for oil as people were paying to have it stored. But with the recovery, as it came through in the first part of the year, for example, China increased its demand for natural gas by 15%, but its imports of gas by 24%. The energy recovery that came through was one that then put enormous strain on limited supply. And we have seen that particularly in the natural gas market. The oil market recovered to, say, the current value of about $80 a barrel for Brent crude. The equivalent natural gas price per barrel has been $190 a barrel. Uh, and that has put its particular strains with natural gas being used for power generation. China has had major power shortages. That in turn has had consequences for its own production systems. And they have now told their power supply industry to secure coal, oil, gas, power, and the quote is, at all costs. And when the market is up against a Chinese government that's willing to buy energy at all costs, that sustains particular high prices. Stocks were run down in Europe over the winter, over last winter and hadn't really recovered. Russia was still replenishing its reduced stocks. Russia is, it appears, probably honouring its contracts but doing no more. And there are all the, the other pieces of energy politics that go around dealing with Russia. The UK has very thin stocks, very little capacity to store, but has now secured an agreement with Qatar to be a supplier of liquid natural gas as a last resort. And we have major port capacity for bringing it in. So much now depends quite on what this coming winter looks like. And the increase in energy prices has uh, has led to uh, an increase in fertiliser prices for farmers and this bizarre situation of a shortage of CO2. And uh, during a time where we're talking about ways of reducing CO2 or taking CO2 from the atmosphere, we've been in a situation where we've been encouraging more CO2 production. Yes, fertiliser and carbon dioxide have been a fascinating part of this autumn story. Uh, fertilizer prices are already beginning to rise, partly with natural gas prices beginning to rise, but also because of reduction in fertilizer manufacturing capacity. A Chinese plant in Yunnan was closed for lack of electricity to power it. 
European plants were down for maintenance. Farmers then began looking at the fertilizer prices and thought, well, won't buy yet. They're bound to come down. And then the big natural gas price spike cut in. And at that point, CF Industries, as a predominant player in the UK market, with its factories in Teesside and Cheshire, looked at the economics of slightly reduced demand, sharply increased input costs, and said, we simply can't operate, and so shut down. It was then discovered, because I don't think many people were terribly aware of it, because it's just one of the quiet bits of the economy that simply makes life go on, that the byproduct of producing ammonia from natural gas to make fertilizers was indeed carbon dioxide. And so, as you say, the irony is that just as we are trying to wrestle with large quantities of loose carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, uh, we are suddenly short of having it in readily available, usable form to do an enormous range of things. The focus was on stunning pigs and poultry before slaughter, but actually more of it was probably more importantly used in food packaging. But advanced gas-cooled nuclear reactors have a clue in the name. They use carbon dioxide as part of the cooling mechanism that helps them function. It goes into fizzy drinks, but it also is used as part of many medical operations. CO2 just becomes one of those very important but understated parts of, 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 of how the domestic economy works. And we were now not producing any, and none was really coming much from elsewhere. We'd had a CO2 crisis back in the summer of 2018, when a whole block of fertilizer plants had ceased production coincidentally for maintenance. And I think the companies had laid in bigger stocks against such a thing happening again. And indeed, it, would, it was very lucky that they had done, because that gave just enough time for the government, quite remarkably, to step in with CF Industries and say, we will keep you open for three weeks to produce the CO2 that we need, while you come to a deal with your CO2 purchasers that will see you into the new year. And that was just done. Uh, one of the factories has reopened, CO2 has been delivered, and alongside that, a certain amount of fertilizer is being produced. Though quite oddly, um, it would seem as a byproduct of producing carbon dioxide. The market, the market arrived at a deal. That deal runs until January. We wait to see what happens then. Uh, the carbon dioxide price may well have quintupled as a result of that. Uh, and then we look to next year to discover the next round of this story. And there, there will be a lot of farmers in a situation whereby they might have reduced their fertiliser uh, expenditure um, and possibly might not have any in stock at all, given the enormous hike in prices. What, what's going to be the impact of that? Do, do you expect that some farmers will have to look closely at changes to their production systems, changes to the way they go about um, producing the products, or possibly looking at other ways to, to generate fertility in the soil? This could, could be a, a turning point for some farmers. Well, I think there are short-term issues, and then there may be longer-term issues in this. Uh, it's probable that nitrogen fertilizer, which is what we're really talking about here, will now be available through the spring. The question will be its price. Uh, there will be more imports. Fertilizer factories have, have resumed. Some of the, the high price of fertilizers reflects the high price of the, the high prices being achieved for agricultural produce. Uh, and indeed, uh, the strengthening of the wheat price can still make it rational to apply fertilizer and still make an increased margin. Uh, where people are good at that. Uh, 
And so it's not it, it, it's not as absolute as it might seem, but it is a significant increase in cost, in call on working capital, in exposure to risk, in costs incurred ahead of harvest. So that can be done. Uh, there are increased prices of potash and phosphate. Those many people might be able to defer for a year and ease cost on that. You know, there is a tolerance around that, but it'll vary between people. There's some work going on that might suggest there's less of an initial shock from, from not applying nitrogen than might be thought, but I don't know that how far anybody would really want to rely on that. So looking into the spring, will we see more people looking to plant legumes, peas and beans and so on, or, clover, or, or using clover in grass mixes? Will they shift what they do? At what point will people judge their spring applications? Uh, all of this is there. The alternative of moving into conservation, some form of conservation planting, uh, I'm told that the seeds for wildflower meadow mixes and so on are now getting quite scarce, and so presumably there will be price issues there. Longer term, then this may be something that leads people to look more at how they generate their own fertility, the arguments around regenerative agriculture and its various meanings, and linked then very clearly with how we improve soil carbon, soil organic matter as part of the long-run support for domestic fertility and productivity, as well as carbon sequestration. So a lot is in this. For some people, paying the price and carrying on will be completely rational. For other people, they may start looking at other thoughts. And whilst clearly there's going to be some concern around the rise in input costs, on the other hand, uh, on the other side, a more positive note, perhaps there's been an increase in market prices generally, with the exception of pigs, and we'll come on to pigs in just a moment. But livestock prices have been incredibly strong, as, as an example. Um, that's That'll boost income on many farms. Oh, yes. Uh, beef and sheep prices have been very strong. Uh, and, and, and running well ahead. And I think a lot of that has been driven by that shift to domestic demand, that it has been more the catering trade and food processing that has tended to be more promiscuous in where it has been buying. Uh, the domestic market that we've lived with for much of the last 18 months is much more focused on buying British beef, British lamb. And that has had a, a, a strong effect on prices combined with, I think, some fall in numbers. So that side has, has, has run well. Looking more widely across the, the spread of agriculture, uh, well, the Food and Agriculture Organization internationally is currently expecting two years of strong prices at least coming, coming along. Uh, we are in global markets for grains and other arable products. Those have seen very strong increases in price. I mean, just looking at this weekend's press, if we're seeing uh, ordinary feed wheat at £225 a tonne and bread wheat at £275 a tonne, uh, those are prices that would not have been expected in, in either of the last two price spikes. But that's part of a world in which we are seeing commodity prices generally running very strongly, whether it's copper, uh, whether it's timber, whether it's steel, or indeed here the soft commodities like grain. So those are doing very well, but they, of course, become the input costs for pigs and poultry and the other feed for livestock. And it's perhaps worth just picking up from the Dimbleby food report that 85% of our land area is one way or another, and in this case arable, is used to support the livestock sector. So there's a mutual interest in watching that for um, as we go through this. The one sector that is down is pigs, 
Uh, their marketplace has been disrupted. The processing chain has been disrupted. Numbers have grown. That has led to the very very well publicized issue of the risk of having to have a cull of pigs. And that has in turn then led the government to use its first post-Brexit exercise of market management powers to bring in a private storage scheme for minimally butchered pork to um, take it off the market for a number of months. And Scotland has done the same, a private storage scheme for pork in Scotland. Uh, And it has also introduced, in England, we've also introduced a slaughter premium for pigs that are slaughtered where the abattoir has laid on an extra shift. So it's, it, it, it's trying to put money into getting extra throughput, building extra capacity in the slaughterhouses through that mechanism to try, try and help clear that backlog. But that is still a sector that appears in difficulty. Um, so tell us a bit more now about the, the specific labour challenges in the slaughterhouses. That's been a, a feature this year. Well, the whole food processing sector has been under significant pressure on, on the labour front. At one level, just like supermarket depots and elsewhere, they've been very exposed simply to the incidence of COVID-19. So when staff have been taken out because they're self-isolating or because they're infected, that has reduced ability. And a lot of work has had to be done keeping those processes, whether it's vegetable processing, whether it's slaughterhouses, whether it's indeed supermarket depots, keeping them moving supply through the system. But we have seen a lot of pressure on wage rates at the bottom end of, of, of this area, driven as people as people have moved into other lines of work, and particularly after the lockdown, when a significant number of people who were working, especially as butchers in slaughterhouses, were went back to homes in Europe and didn't return. So that was more of a function of this summer than earlier in the process. That has then put very significant strain on the slaughterhouses and similar pressures in veg processing uh, to try and find the labour to keep stock moving through the process. Uh, Actual slaughtering appears to have continued to function, but the butchering afterwards, and that is recognised as a higher skilled job, it is recognised as being paid uh, rates that warrant migration. The difficulties that have been found there are around finding butchers from abroad that meet the language skills. The government, under the pressure for both pig and poultry sectors, again, as with lorry drivers, has made available a block of temporary visas for people to come and do that work, provided they meet those tests. And as I understand it at the moment, while the full number of visas available may not have been taken up, that appears now to be easing conditions such that there should be poultry on the table for people at Christmas, such that pork will be coming through the system so that it goes into the market or indeed into that private storage arrangement that that, that we've discussed. And picking up on some of the themes there around labour shortages, that's been a problem across many sectors. Almost every industry has had challenges over the past 18 months with with labour supply. But that's not a situation limited to the UK alone. This is a global issue, particularly around the shortage of lorry drivers. Yes, I mean, we obviously focus enormously on our own immediate concerns and, and interpret it in our way. But what is striking is the shortage of lorry drivers in the States and on the continent as well. And that seems to be part of a much larger and as yet 
un, uh, unestablished set of changes in the labor market. Some of it is older drivers retiring. Some of it is people finding other jobs. Uh, a lot of talk about the conditions for road hauliers on the road uh, and how that could be improved to attract people. Uh, something around hours. Uh, in this country, a fraction, but only a relatively small fraction of the lost number being European citizens who've chosen either to go or not to come back when they've been away. But much more, it's, it's functions of the domestic labour market. And that has complicated matters very considerably. The government has, for the last, just, just to assist with the last few months of this year, made available temporary visas for lorry drivers to come and work here and is allowed more movements by foreign hauliers between British destinations to help, again, ease, ease the questions of capacity and haulage. But there's a bigger and longer-term problem in this, and it, that does, in the nature of itself, make the supply chain much more, uh, much more difficult if you can't move goods around. And uh, in conclusion, Jeremy, what's your outlook for next year as uh, hopefully some of these supply chain issues um, sort themselves out? What, what do you think is going to be the, the features for next year? I think we do look to world supply chains in general sorting themselves out. Uh, I know that the head of Associated British Ports has said we might not get all the containers in quite the right places until very late next year, 2022. But I think that we are progressively seeing things align themselves, the cycle getting back into sync and supply chains coming back into order. The extreme price in timber values did, did halt. And that's, if you like, is an early sign that we are seeing important inputs into the economy um, becoming more, uh, more stable. I think, though, the prospects for energy may well remain for high prices for quite some time yet. And that, of course, has its consequences, we said, for fertilizer. It has its consequences for domestic heating. It has its consequences in many ways for the approach that we take towards climate change mitigation and the reduction in emissions. It has driven us back at one side to, to reopening some coal-fired power production. But at the other end, if energy is dearer, it makes it easier to look at the alternatives. And those are part of what we have to look at for the future. Well, Jeremy Moody, thank you ever so much for taking us through the past 18 months and the issues we've seen around supply chains and sharing your insights and outlook for the future. CAV members, of course, uh, can keep up to date with all the latest developments by um, constantly looking at the What's New section on the CAAV website, where there are a number of updates, briefing notes uh, to be uh, made available there. Well, Jeremy, once again, thank you very much. And there we are. We've reached the end of yet another episode of the CAAV podcast. If you want to keep up to date with all future episodes or indeed catch up on previous ones, please head to our website or you can subscribe for free on whichever platform you use. Also, if you've got any feedback or ideas for future episodes, please get in touch by sending us an email to inquire at caav.org.uk. But that's it for today. Until the next time, thank you very much for listening and bye for now.